Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in your weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with a few stories that are all connected. The first story, this is in the Daily Mail. Outrageous council workers want kind-hearted shoppers not to give cash to beggars because they are making up to £200 and will come back. Council workers have caused outrage after telling kind-hearted shoppers not to give cash to a market town street beggars because they are making up to £200 a day. Officials at Neathport Talbot Council in South Wales have said the generosity of shoppers has caused a surge in people begging for money. In turn, they say this has triggered an increase in antisocial behaviour in the town centre. Shan Morris, Neathport Talbot Council's community safety officer, said at a public meeting to tackle antisocial behaviour. If somebody is begging or just sitting there with a hat or container in front of them, people will give them money or buy them food or drink. Oh no, we can't have that. People helping others, whatever next. The problem with that is if you give them money and they're in the town centre all day and there's a heavy footfall, they can go away with between 100 and 200 pounds and they're going to come back. Well, what are they going to do with 100 to 200 pounds anyway? Realistically, I was in Manchester a few months ago and a guy who lives there was telling me that some of the homeless people in the city, and I saw a lot of them, they have jobs, but they can't afford to live anywhere, even to rent anywhere. So £100-£200 is not going to get these homeless people much, realistically. Miss Morris suggested donating to homeless charities, who she said were best placed to deal with genuine cases of homelessness. Shopkeepers have also claimed people's sympathies being abused with beggars jumping into taxis to get home with pockets of cash. Of course there are beggars who are not homeless and don't need the money. Of course there will be those people, but it's... Shades of grey rather than seeing everything black and white. Some of them are genuine. Some of them have jobs but can't afford to live anywhere. And some of them are just doing it for the sake of getting money when they don't need to. But it's... Every every case is different. It's not going to be the same in every case. One business owner in Neath, who did not want to be named, said people complain about shops closing and the antisocial behaviour in Neath, but they're contributing to it through sympathy. They think they're helping genuine homeless people, but not all of them are. Well, that's correct. Some of them are doing it just for the sake of getting money. We see them all the time jumping into taxis and bags full of stuff and we often see the food bin because it's not the food they want. But not everyone has agreed with the council's claims and one individual questioning where the £100-£200 figure came from. Richard Hughes wrote, What? They stopped and asked a beggar, excuse me, but if you don't mind me asking why you're sleeping on the streets and going days without food, how much are you earning? Another individual added, I'm happy to give help where I feel it's needed. One Facebook user said, yes, I know a lot have homes, but if they are under 35, they get just £47 towards that rent. Most are £100 and upwards, and even if they got a job, that's a lot of money to find. That's exactly what I was talking about just now with when I was in Manchester recently. There was no black and white on this. There was so much grey area. Each case is different. Exactly what I was just saying. The news comes just months after Windsor Council's Conservative leader faced a vote of no confidence after saying rough sleepers should be moved on before Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding in May. Yeah, we have to make sure the area looks the best for the biggest scroungers on earth. Talk about homeless people begging, but you've got the biggest scroungers on earth who were called the British royal family, who are only there because of their DNA. If they had a different DNA, they might be on the streets. Because one person slept with another at a certain time, therefore they're called the royal family. And they get money from taxpayers, some of whom eventually end up on the streets. This is the inverted world we live in. Simon Dudley was forced to apologise after complaining about aggressive begging and intimidation and bags and detritus in a letter to police. He also said police should use their powers under the 1824 Vagrancy Act. So it goes all the way back to then. There was laws about homeless people. 
This is the mentality of our, our world. And the Antisocial Behaviour Crime and Policing Act 2014 to protect residents and tourists. Mr Dudley later apologised for his comments and said he was not referring to genuine homeless people and that he regretted referring to Harry and Miss Markle's wedding at the time. Well, I would imagine he was told to refer to Harry and Miss Markle's wedding. Someone's told him to say that. The petition to stop rough sleepers being taken off the streets in response to his comments attracted more than 270,000 signatures. This is another example of the Hunger Games Society, which I talk about in episode 4. There's a depopulation agenda, and if you're going to cull a massive amount of the global population, then you're obviously going to start with the elderly and the homeless, and this is what we're seeing. Get rid of them first, and that leaves everyone else. We're also seeing, as I talk about in episode 3 and 8, attacks on male sperm and fertility, population control, which the feminist movement supports. Clueless feminists, the same feminist movement started by the Rockefeller family, one of these elite family networks, but most feminists and progressives will have no idea why the Rockefeller is behind population control and eugenics. Because they want a massive call of the global population, not because of overpopulation, but to make it easier to control the global population, which is obviously easier to do when there's less of the global population. On the subject of life or death, the next story connects into this story. This is also in the Daily Mail. Hospitals are hiring managers at a faster rate than doctors, despite pledges by ministers to cut back on the manager class run in the NHS. Hospitals are employing new managers at a faster rate than doctors and nurses, figures show. Since 2013, NHS Trust took on 3,600 managers, compared with 8,300 more doctors and 7,000 more nurses. The increase equates to a 90% rise in management jobs, compared to 8% more doctors and just 2% more nurses. The figures are from NHS Digital Income just weeks after it showed that there were 1,300 more NHS managers than a year ago, while overall nurse and GP recruitment numbers fell. In the past year alone, the number of senior managers, typically starting on around £65,000, increased by 7% in England to 10,300. Middle management has also continued to rise. The total number of managers is now more than 32,000, a rise of almost a fifth in four years. Yesterday, analysis by the BBC found more than three-quarters of NHS trusts in England increased management ranks while reporting nursing shortages. Nine trusts have more than doubled the number of managers employed since 2013. Janet Davis, chief executive of the Royal College of Nursing, said nurses on the NHS frontline will find these figures galling. The health service must be well run, but it is nurses who are responsible for the vast majority of hands-on patient care. Low pay, increased pressure on the NHS, and the failure to train enough nurses over a long period has contributed to today's nurse shortages. Despite pledges by ministers to cut back on the manager class run in the NHS, the statistics show the number of senior positions are on the rise. Overall, the NHS workforce rose by 1.5% by 17,900 to 1.21 million in the past year, according to NHS Digital, which handles health service data and technology. The number of consultants and hospital doctors both rose by 3.4%, 1,490, and 2.4%, 1,250, respectively. Midwives also crept up by 0.8%, 168. A spokesman for Angulator NHS Improvement said, Research consistently shows that rather than having too many managers, the NHS actually has too few given the complexity of delivering modern healthcare. Many of these managers will also undertake clinical work. But this is not an either-or situation. The NHS needs world-class nurses, doctors and a range of support staff in addition to excellent management to provide the best care possible. The 100,000 virtual GPs. Doctors are being paid more than £100,000 to work from home using video consultations on smartphones and tablets. GPs are turning their backs on traditional surgeries and becoming virtual doctors, meaning they never see patients face to face. 
More than 200 now work for GP at hand, which offers London patients online consultations and is soon expected to have 40,000 users. It is currently advertised in positions boasting no duty days, no home visits, ever. Hardly any paperwork and offering salaries up to £100,000. That can reach 120000 with evening and weekend work. Critics say the easy work is luring GPs away from family practices, fueling a chronic shortage. A spokesman for GP at hand said salaries were in line with those offered by NHS practices. Now, what this is, is a prime example of what I talked about before and the whole point of pay-per-view existing in the first place. You can look at this on one level and think it's all about money and that it's all about government and austerity and cuts and things like that. That's one level of it. The other level is it goes beyond government. See, as I've said before, if you know that there is an agenda for society and that society is agenda-driven, not money-driven or people-driven, and society changes in line with the agenda, and you know what the agenda is, then you can see this from another angle. This is another example of the Hunger Games Society. The idea is for corporations to run everything. I talked before in episodes 2 and 6 about the NHS and why there is an effort to privatise the NHS, as there is with everything in society. Either it will be privatised and run by a corporation, or it will be a corporation in its own right with a mega monopoly. This is what we're seeing with Amazon. Going back to the first story today, this also plays into the depopulation agenda quite clearly, because an obvious consequence of a run-down health service is people are going to suffer from a lack of adequate health care, and some are going to die because of that, and it's all coldly calculated and long-planned. This is the difference between those who think government and authorities there to look at these problems and try to solve them, and those who realise the psychopathic, empathy-deleted mentality running human society. And the sooner people understand that, the better. And it's going to have to happen eventually. People will look at Theresa May and the Conservative government, but they're just the government now. It's a long plan. People will say, oh, it's the Conservatives, or always Theresa May, or, or oh, it's Labour, or oh, it's whatever parties in power. And if we get different people in, it'd be better. Because they're making the fundamental flaw of perception, thinking they are there to solve problems. So the only conclusion people can come to if they think that is that the people in power don't know what they're doing. And if you replace them, then it will be better because they think they're actually there to help. When people realise society is agenda driven and what happens is in line with that agenda, then they can actually start to understand why things are happening. People think when they read or hear stories like this that it's just about money and it's about not understanding how to solve the problem in government. But there's an agenda. That's what decides what happens. When people understand that and they understand the psychopathic mentality behind it, then we can start to get a grasp on the society we live in. People find it impossible to understand human society because there's this happening here, there's this organisation, there's this person, there's this event. There's this government statement, there's this policy, there's this area of society, there's this person. And it seems so difficult to understand it all. But when you understand the connections between all of that, and you understand that there's an agenda, then everything morphs into clarity. And you can understand it very, very simply. What the media does, because it doesn't know, is present everything as isolated and unconnected. And that's why the tagline of pay-per-view is context and connections. Because once you've got those two things, then society is an open book. And more than that, 
Once you understand the agenda, you can see the steps towards it, why certain things have happened on the road to where we are now. And where we are now is nowhere near where they want to go. But everything morphs into clarity once you understand the context and connections necessary. And that's why I do pay-per-view, because those are the two things the mainstream media misses, because they don't know. People find it impossible to understand human society, so they leave it to clever people, in quote marks, to do it, because they can, they think. And what happens when you do that? Government is the answer, and what the governments do, as well as corporations? Introduce the elite's global agenda into human society. Speaking of corporations. This is in the Daily Mail. Several Amazon workers have considered suicide since joining the company. Poll reveals why warehouse staff claim they have urinated into bottles because they're afraid of time wasting. Some Amazon warehouse staff have felt suicidal since joining the company according to a survey. In a poll of uninjured workers, more than half said they suffer from depression and eight people said they thought about killing themselves. The survey was carried out by organizers, campaigns for employment unions. James Bloodworth, who worked 10 hours shifts at a warehouse in Rugeley, Staffordshire, Claimed staff were peeing in bottles because they were scared of getting in trouble for taking toilet breaks. The Rugeley warehouse measures 700,000 square feet and some of the 1,200 workers face a 10 minute quarter of a mile walk to two toilets on the ground floor of the four story building. He said for those of us who worked on the top floor, the closest toilets were down four flights of stairs. Mr. Bloodworth, who worked as a picker selecting goods for dispatch, walked 10 miles a day in the job to research for a book on low wage Britain. He revealed workers were continually monitored for time wasting by supervisors and claimed the strictness was what caused the toilet bottle system. Mr. Bloodworth said people just peed in bottles because they lived in fear of being disciplined over their idle time and losing their jobs just because they needed the loot. He said the warehouse in Rugeley is like a prison with airport style security scanners where workers are checked and patted down in case they steal. The security guards at Amazon were endowed with a great deal of power which included the right to search your car if they suspected you were stealing something. Hoodies and sunglasses were banned along the mobile phones as a security measure, he said. The staff surveyed anonymously by organisers also complained of being punished for being ill. I had an epilepsy episode at work and was taken to hospital. The next day someone rang me and asked why I was not in work. When worker told the Sunday Mirror. Nearly three quarters of those polled said they were so frightened of missing productivity targets that they'd starved themselves of water so they wouldn't need the toilet. Amazon denies claims of worker stress and its warehouse is saying they're not convinced the staff polled actually worked for them. A spokesperson for the company said we haven't been provided with confirmation that people who completed the survey worked to Amazon. We don't recognise these allegations as an accurate portrayal of activities in our buildings. We have a focus on ensuring we provide a great environment for all our employees. And last month, Amazon was named by LinkedIn as the seventh most sought-after place to work in the UK and ranked first place in the US. Well, maybe until people start working there. Amazon also offers public tours of its fulfillment centres so customers can see firsthand what happens after they click buy on Amazon. Amazon ensures all of its associates have easy access to toilet facilities, which are just a short walk from where they work. Well, this has come out before about the way Amazon treats its workers, and I've mentioned it before. This is an example of the corporate-dominated world planned, where everything is run by corporations. Whether it's privatised like the NHS, or whether it's a corporation in its own right, like Amazon, with a mega, with a mega monopoly. And this is connected to the story I just read about homelessness, because the idea is, as I've talked about before with the Hunger Games Society, as I talked about in episode four, the idea is that everybody is in poverty, except the elite. And the only strata of society between that is law enforcement, eventually robotic, run by artificial intelligence. Corporations will be everything. And if you don't want to work for a corporation, then there's no other choice. So you have to accept the way that 
corporation is treating you as an employee because if you don't then you will not work anywhere because this is the cold psychopathic corporate mentality and if you're going to earn a meager amount of money in comparison to the elite to survive then you're going to have to work for the corporation so this is an example of what is planned everywhere that's what work will be in the future just enough to survive all three stories I've just read out are connected and this is why I do pay-per-view to point out what the connections are. Another story here about privatisation, although the story itself is about police officers quitting their jobs. This is in the Daily Mirror. Cop out. Police officers are quitting their jobs at one of the highest rates since rebels began. Resignations have soared by almost 50% since Labour left office in 2010, Home Office data reveals. One in eight are so demoralised they want to leave within two years. Analysis by the House of Commons Library shows 2,156 officers quit last year. In the seven years since 2010, more than 11,670 have chosen to go. The real flood of departures is blamed on real-term pay cuts combined with increasing workloads. Police Federation says officers are wrapped up a backlog of 250,000 rest days as cancelled days off and compulsory overtime are used to plug the shortfall in numbers. The Police Federation says officers have wrapped up a backlog of 250,000 rest days as cancelled days off and compulsory overtime are used to plug the shortfall in numbers. The union also warned of plunging morale and damage to officers' mental health, with 62% of its members saying their workload is too high. The figures show 30 out of 43 forces have suffered a fall in the number of officers and PCSOs working in local policing since 2010. Shadow Policing Minister Louise Hay said the Tories have spent eight years denigrating the police. Officers are so sick and tired of being undervalued, underpaid and overworked that they are flooding out of the service. Instead of continuing to ignore the mounting evidence, the Tories need to face up with the crisis they have created. The latest survey of more than 30,000 rank and file officers by the Police Federation found 72% felt workloads had risen in the last year. Just under two-thirds said their workload had been too high. And 60% said their own personal morale was low, cited as a key factor in the 12.3% who wanted to leave in the next two years. This is a story... Like I said just now, just like the NHS, of running a public service down to soften resistance and garner public support for privatisation. I met a police officer a couple of days ago, and he said that his force, a local force in Kingswood in Bristol where I live, has been told they have to save 40 million over five years, which is an extraordinary figure. This is one of the ways services are run down, is underfunding, among other ways. They want to privatise law enforcement. If you want a dictatorship, global dictatorship. You have to control law enforcement, and that's what privatisation is all about. Privatisation by corporations which you control ultimately. However, in the end, it won't even be humans in law enforcement, except maybe for paperwork and administration. In the end, it will be robots controlled by artificial intelligence. That's where it's going. Change of subject now. Story now about the European Union and Brexit in the Sunday Times. Theresa May may surrender a customs union. Theresa May's team has privately admitted she may have to accept permanent membership of the European Customs Union after a secret wargaming exercise concluded that even Brexiteers such as Michael Gove and David Davis will not resign in protest. The Prime Minister has insisted that the UK will leave the common tariff area so it can pursue free trade deals outside the EU, but one of May's political teams told a meeting on March 20th that she and senior aides will not be crying into our beer if Parliament forces the government's hand, a position that will enrage some Brexiteers. 
The Lords voted last week to stay in a customs union and 10 Tory MPs are expected to do so in the Commons overturning May's majority. In the crunch meeting attended by Oliver Robbins, May's chief Brexit negotiator, officials predicted Gove and Davis would accept that outcome, while only Boris Johnson and Liam Fox would be likely to quit. The Foreign Secretary has publicly said staying in a customs union would be worse than remaining in the EU. Gove's stance was confirmed by four sources who have discussed the issue with the Environment Secretary. Michael is not ready to roll over in cabinet, once said, but he recognises that the arithmetic is difficult. Revelations will be greeted with anger by hardline Brexiteers around Jacob Rees-Mogg, who would probably warn Tory whips that remaining in a customs union would prompt a leadership challenge. A source familiar with the discussion said they sat in a room in 9 Downing Street when they were discussing Brexit and Ollie Robbins came in. The discussion focused on what to do if Parliament votes to stay in a customs union. Someone from the political unit at number 10 said... We wouldn't cry into our beer if we were forced to do this. The PM needs to go through the choreography of trying to leave, but we might be forced to do it. Robbins has been pushing for customs union membership as a way of preventing a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. The source added, the civil service fast stream have a pool on who is going to resign first. All the money is on Liam Fox and then Boris. Members of May's Brexit War Cabinet will meet on Wednesday to discuss trade before finalising the UK stance ahead of a crunch EU summit on June 29th. In an effort to turn the screws, Labour is demanding the Prime Minister bring forward a binding Commons vote on whether Britain should remain in the Union. In a letter to May, Sir Keir Starmer, Labour's Brexit spokesman, claims that delaying the vote has already led to deep anxiety for businesses and communities across the UK, particularly in Northern Ireland. He offered to surrender Wednesday's Opposition Day debate so she can bring forward the vote. The government cannot indefinitely delay the passage of legislation through the Commons for fear of defeat on crucial votes, Starmer writes. If a decision is not made until June then that will leave just three months to negotiate the details of the final agreement. A Downing Street source said May will continue to argue for Britain to quit the union. Government policy is to leave the customs union. That's what we will continue to argue for. That's where you want to end up. Well, I've said before that I have no doubt that the delay in the debate and in the discussions, negotiations, is to keep Britain in the EU for as long as possible. This is why we are scheduled to leave in 2019 when the referendum was in 2016. The customs union is a major part of EU dictatorship along with the single market and open border. Those three have to be gone completely after any country leaves any political union. Otherwise, they've not left the political union. They've just become an unofficial member state. If you want a world government dictatorship, which, as I've said before, is the agenda in the end, the unions will be the means through which the world government will dictate to the individual countries designed to be broken up into regions. This is the Hunger Games Society again. See episode 4 for more on what that means. But if you want a world government dictatorship, then you cannot have countries being independent. You need countries to be dependent on each other, and different countries to specialise in different areas. This is why, when Ted Heath signed us into the EU in 1973, one of the conditions, as has come out officially, was that Britain's fishing industry would be run down to what it is now, compared to what it was then. So if Britain wants the quantity and quality of fishing it had then, it has to look to other areas of the world. This is how it works. Everyone dependent on everyone else, and you centrally control that mass of dependency. Which means ultimately everyone's dependent on you for what they need. It's not about organisation and convenience, it's about control. And in this system, as I've said, the unions will be dictated to by the world government. Which means ultimately everyone's dependent on the world government unelected political figures from what they need. This again is the Hunger Games Society. And if you take it to the next level, who would ultimately control the world government just as they ultimately control political leaders now? The global elite.
This is how it works. That's why they want Britain to stay in the European Union and why they want unions for different parts of the world. They've already got an African Union. They want a North American Union. They want unions for, di for different areas of the world to be dictated to by the world government, ultimately controlled by the elite. In terms of Britain, the idea is to keep Britain in the EU in all but name. If we do leave, and as I've said before, I'm not convinced we will definitely leave, but if we do, then plan B, because plan A was to derail the referendum and for the majority that voted to vote to remain, that didn't work. So plan B is that if we do leave, to keep us in the EU in as many major areas as possible, while officially being out of the EU. Change of subject now story here about political correctness. This is an opinion piece from the Daily Mail called The New Appeasers. As historic England calls for a debate on knocking down Nelson's column, Dominic Sandbrook says the way such bodies constantly giving to the far left is beneath contempt. We went on a family outing. This is this guy, Dominic Sandbrook. We went on a family outing to London a few weeks ago to see the sights. Among our stops was inevitably Trafalgar Square, where the children peered up at the figure of Horatio Lord Nelson almost 170 feet above the streets on his mighty granite column. Few lives in our national history are more rousing than that of the vicar's son from Norfolk. Having lost an eye and an arm in the struggle against Napoleon's cruel tyranny, Nelson faced the fleets of France and Spain at Trafalgar in 1805 in a titanic showdown for control of the seas. Opening the battle with a signal, England expects that every man will do his duty. Nelson steered his fleet to a glorious victory, only to be cut down by a French sniper on the deck of HMS Victory. As he breathed his last, the battle was won and Britain was saved. Well, there's a lot more to know about that, but the article goes on. It's a great story and it is not surprising that the children loved it, staring wide-eyed up at the distant figure of the hero who saved his country. Again, this is an opinion piece, so I don't necessarily agree with every opinion expressed, but... The article goes on. Indeed, more than two centuries after Trafalgar, Nelson's column remains one of the great symbols of Britain itself. Along with Big Ben, Buckingham Palace and the Tower of London, it has become an emblem of our identity. You might assume, therefore, that no sane person would contemplate knocking Nelson's column down. Would the French consider demolishing the Arc de Triomphe? Would the Italians discuss detonating the Colosseum? Would the Americans blow up the Lincoln Memorial? Yet the Quango Historic England thinks we need a debate about the future of controversial statues and memoriams. As if that were not enough, it has even circulated a little clip on social media showing a wrecking ball knocking Nelson off its pedestal. In case you think you misread that last paragraph, let me repeat that. The clip was not made by some group of ISIS-inspired fanatics or by a group of student union loonies. Although it could certainly be the latter. It was made by a government-backed public body which spends almost £90 million of our money a year to help people care for, enjoy and celebrate England's spectacular historic environment. You may well think that knocking down one of the greatest symbols of our national history is a pretty deranged way of caring for our historic environment. A spokesman for Historic England whimpered that they were only trying to encourage a debate, which is what people always say when they have been caught out. But the truth, as Historic England well knows, is that they were merely copying an argument made in The Guardian by the left-wing writer Athua Hirsch. She claimed that Nelson's column is a symbol of slavery because Nelson used his seat in the House of Lords in his position of huge influence to perpetuate the tyranny, serial rape and exploitation organised by West Indian planters, some of whom he counted among his closest friends. Like many columnists, Miss Hirsch trades on being provocative. She has carved out a lucrative role as a self-appointed flagellant, forever berating the rest of us about the supposed crimes of the British Empire. Personally, I find... Her version of our national history ludicrously one-sided, but she is perfectly entitled to write whatever she wants. 
Absolutely she is, as is anyone. For historic England to copy her, however, strikes me as shameful. This is a body, after all, that has been entrusted by the government with the care of our national heritage. It spends our own money, in other words, looking after our history and theory, but in practice it seems to have fallen victim to a pervasive and entirely unreflective culture of political correctness. This is what political correctness is about. Censorship. It's not about protecting minorities, it's about censorship. It's about stopping anything other than the politically correct view being expressed in any form through any medium. If you want to see what a culture of box ticking looks like, you could do worse than look at Historic England's advertisement for eight-week heritage training placements for undergraduates and recent graduates, for which only people who identify as having black, Asian or other minority ethnic heritage or mixed heritage need apply. See, political correctness is a racist perspective because it's obsessed with race. I look at the personality of someone and the kind of person they are rather than the body, whereas political correctness looks at the body, the race, the group, rather than the individual, which makes it a racist philosophy, even though it claims to be anti-racist. What is holding a course, a training placement, and excluding people of a certain race? What is that but racist? But it can't be because... They're excluding the majority, white people, and the, as I've said before, the majority can never be discriminated against. The majority can only be those doing the discrimination. If the course was only for white people, there would be an absolute outrage claiming that it's racism. The article goes on. If you want to see what a culture of box ticking looks like, you could do worse than look at Historic England's training placement, which I've just talked about. Or look at its most recent historical project, which aims to celebrate Britain's LGBTQ heritage. Well, I've talked about that before, many times. This obsession with any one of a growing number of genders. And talks about the fact that it's about the end of gender. Transgender, especially, is about the end of gender. That's something to celebrate, isn't it? Yeah, let's celebrate the end of gender, that makes sense. Anyway, the article goes on. The overwhelming picture is of an institution so desperate to advertise its progressive credentials. That's the mindset, the progressive mindset. So keen to genuflect before the cult of victimhood. Now, there's a couple of points there. So keen to genuflect. In other words, get on its knees and adhere to the official politically correct line before the cult of victimhood. Because that's what this is all about the progressives and the social justice warriors. They see themselves as victims. And if you, without going too deep into other areas, which I don't talk about here, but I do elsewhere, if you see yourself as a victim, then that's the life you'll live. It's all about being a victim. Rather than focusing on strengthening people so that whatever is said about them doesn't affect them because they have a backbone and they choose not to be offended by something, Offence is a choice, as I've said before. The article goes on. The overwhelming picture is of an institution so desperate to advertise its progressive credentials, so keen to genuflect before the cult of victimhood that it sees its proper role as apologising for our history rather than celebrating it. This is something we see with political correctness. The idea that what a certain group of people did in the past, people of that same race or culture have to feel guilty for in the present. I don't feel guilty for what the British Empire did, which was 
fascistic and terrible. But I don't feel the way it saw fit to colonise the world because it suited them and the force behind them to do that, much like Britain is seeking to do in certain parts of the world now. But I don't feel guilty for that. Why? Because I wasn't there. I didn't do it. The idea that just because you're the same skin colour or culture that you should feel guilty for what a group of people did, you were the same skin colour as you. Not only that they're the same race or culture, but they did it a hundred or more years ago. Did it way in the past is ludicrous. But that's what we're seeing and that's what this is about, this article. The article goes on. And in this topsy-turvy world, knocking down Nelson probably sounds a wonderful idea. The problem is that this is not some crazy one-off, but part of a pattern. Only last weekend, for example, it emerged that Oxford University is to spend at least £20,000 in a project to confront its colonial history. Why does it need to confront its colonial history when it wasn't around and was not responsible for the colonisation that it's focusing on? The article goes on, not only is the university building website flagellating itself from racism, classism and colonialism, it also plans to commission a copy of Oriel College's Cecil Rhodes statue on which students will be invited to write graffiti including swear words. This is not, I promise, some elaborate spoof, it is a genuine initiative by the oldest university in the country so frightened of a tiny minority of far-left headcases. It's exactly, as you always, a tiny number of people that are ever behind these things that it would rather grovel in the gutter than stand up for its own history. This is becoming a sadly familiar story. In every case, it begins with a small group of self-appointed agitators who shout and scream about the so-called crimes of empire until the authorities give them what they want. Well, they don't have to because there's only a few of them. They could tell them to fuck off and stop being so fucking stupid. The Social Rose statue was a case in point. Until 2015, few people even knew it was there. Then some students began howling about it and overnight it became controversial. And that, of course, is how Historic England described Nelson's column in its clip, but no sane person would have seen anything wrong with it until Hirsch wrote a retention-seeking article. The problem, by the way, is not Miss Hirsch and her fellow self-appointed agitators. They are entitled to shout and scream as much as they like. Absolutely, they are. The real problem is the weakness, cowardice and dishonesty of establishment bodies trusted by us to guide our history and heritage. They should have the backbone to stick up for Britain. The depressing reality, however, is that they are appeasers, steeped in a culture of political correctness, they always give way, allowing the far left's version of our history to poison the mainstream. It clearly does not encourage them that the left will never be satisfied. They will always find another statue they want to blow up, another author they want erased from the curriculum, another aspect of our national identity they want eradicated from history. Of course our history had its dark chapters, and of course Nelson wasn't perfect. Who is? That's a good point. If you're going to if you're going to if you're going to ponder on whether or not statues should be put up of historical figures on the basis of whether they are 100% perfect, then you might as well forget about statues because nobody was going to qualify for that, obviously. So you might as well just not have statues in the first place of anyone. Everybody does things that should be recognised and everybody does things that are not so good, but that's called being human. The question is, do we want to erase being human just because it's politically correct? It's a fantasy world that these progressives live in because it's avoiding the reality of what being human actually means. The article goes on. But if Historic England won't stand up for Historic England, then who will? 
What makes this so tragic is that no nation on earth has such a colourful, exciting and stirring history. For generations of schoolchildren, stories like the death of Nelson have been to the thrilling landscape of the historical imagination. What same country wants its children to be ashamed of their own history? Well, as I said, Britain has done things, and America has done things for which it should be castigated, and is still doing so now. Yes, but that doesn't mean there are not things about the history of Britain that should be celebrated also. The article goes on. The first writer who saw this coming was George Orwell. England, he wrote in 1941, is perhaps the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their own nationality. In his great book, 1984, the hero Winston Smith is employed literally to rewrite Britain's history on politically correct lines. In one scene, Winston finds himself in what was once Trafalgar Square, now renamed Victory Square. As in reality, a great column commands the centre of the square, but at the summit stands not Horatio Nelson, but Big Brother, the personification of the new order. That's exactly right, because these politically correct people, these progressives, they talk about being anti-establishment when they are the new establishment. They are the new Big Brother. They are the new censors. They are deciding what can be said and what can't be said, and what can be expressed and what can't be expressed. So they are that which they claim to stand against. They talk about being against discrimination when they are the expression of the ultimate discrimination, which is discriminating against anybody who has a different view than them. The article goes on. As so often, Orwell saw all this coming. The only thing he got wrong was the name of Winston's employer. He called it the Ministry of Truth. We call it Historic England. Well, in truth, this situation with Historic England that this article talks about is just an expression of the progressive mindset, the politically correct progressive mindset. But that's a, a brilliant article there from Dominic Sandbrook. He's made a lot of very good points there. Political correctness is not about stopping discrimination because in the way that it operates, as I've just said, through the progressive political correctness mindset, it is the ultimate discrimination. Discriminating against anybody who has a different view to the official politically correct line and stopping them having a platform and a medium through which to express themselves in their view. That's the ultimate discrimination. Discriminating against people simply because of the view that they have. Excluding them simply because of the view that they have. That is the ultimate discrimination. Because unlike other forms of discrimination, it can apply to anyone of any colour or race or creed that speaks outside of the, or expresses outside of the official politically correct line. Imposing changes to language and censorship of opinion and information, and even facts, because we live in a post-fact society, as I've said before. Emotion and political correctness are what matter now, not facts. And if you take it to the next level, if you are changing the language, which of course was talked about in Orwell's 1984, then when we think, we think in words, we think in images as well, but we think in words, once you reduce the language available over time, over a period of time, then you are eventually, because people second think what they're going to say before they say it, a combination of people second thinking what they're going to say and changing the language in the first place so the words don't exist to say what you don't want people to say, then you are eventually creating a situation where you don't even think anything outside of the official line, official politically correct line. That's what it's about ultimately. So political correctness is the new big brother, it is the new censorship, it is the new establishment in that sense. And as Orwell said in 1984, how can you talk about 
freedom and how you must have freedom when there's no word left that means freedom. If there's no word that means that, how can you talk about it? And if you can't talk about it, take it to the next stage, how can you even think about it? That's what political correctness is about. Change of subject now, this is in the Telegraph. Grammar school acts as head boy and head girl roles and replaces them with gender neutral positions. This is more gender neutral stuff again. A grammar school which scrapped its head boy and head girl roles in a bid to establish gender neutral titles has ended up with two male student leaders. The grammar school in Guernsey is now led by a chair and vice chairperson and a student voice leadership team. Liz Kofi, the school's head teacher, said she hopes that changing the title of the roles is more inclusive as it does away with male and female stereotypes. She said she does not want students to see jobs as being gender specific in the new position titles prepare children for the workplace. It also prepares them for the no-gender world where gender, sexuality and human are no more and what we call humans now will be nothing more than a synthetic creation. Miss Kofi said, it gives the students the experience of what it might actually be like when they enter the workplace. It's our responsibility to ensure young people are educated and made ready for that world. She explains she wants children to feel that they have been chosen for a position not because of their gender but because they are the best person for the position. Well, I agree with that. That's the way it should be. But it's about being streetwise. Again, understanding the agenda behind it. Behind every news story, there's a bigger story behind it. Or at least any news story related to an important area of society anyway. With this one, it's what I've talked about before with the no gender world. I've talked about that in Pilot Podcast and Episode 3 and Episode 5 as well. I've gone into it quite a bit actually on pay-per-view. The no gender world and the no gender world is a world of no procreation which plays into the depopulation agenda quote goes on just like i'm not a headmistress i'm a head teacher it is important because of job credibility people will still join us as a woman when asked she said this is another way to try and ensure stereotypes disappear it's a very good thing to have on your cv See, this is where political correctness comes in. It's not about protecting minorities from abuse. It's about stopping exposure of understanding fundamental to human society. This is why they don't want people pointing out the truth about transgender and neutral gender, because they don't want the truth coming out of what it's really about. A very good rule of thumb is if you're not allowed to criticise something, it's probably the agenda. You're not allowed to criticise Zionism and Israel. You're not allowed to criticise transgender Anything you're not allowed to criticise is a very good chance it's the agenda. You're not allowed to criticise immigration. Again, there's an agenda behind that. The reason they don't want people criticising it is nothing to do with protecting minorities or protecting people from abuse. It's about stopping exposure of what it's really about. This year, two boys took the roles of chair and vice chairperson of the board with three girls sitting on the team. Miss Kofi said she would look to address any issues within ballots and hopes to destroy stereotypical gender roles. I want to guard against that and ensure there's appropriate representation, but it doesn't concern me that it would ever happen, she said. It would maybe make us look at why there weren't a proportionate number of candidates coming forward. Students can apply for the roles in writing with the references from their tutors. Then there is the hustings where their peers vote in an interview with a panel of sixth form management. Natasha Devon, the government's former mental health czar, has previously said that teachers should not refer to pupils as girls or ladies because it means they are constantly reminded of their gender. See, these are just clueless people. Totally clueless. They see it on the level of, as most people do, because they don't know about the agenda, or what the agenda is. They see it on the level of, oh, we should protect people from abuse, or we should respect people by changing language. And this is also, political correctness is also involved in this changing language what changing language this is orwell's newspeak 
talks about this in episode four. If you change the language, then eventually you end up with bland words that don't really have any ability to richly describe things. You just have bland words that don't really mean anything. And of course, when you look at Newspeak from 1984, that's exactly what that was. And how can you talk about the fact that there's an agenda behind transgender if the words don't exist to do that? Changing language on one level appears to be about respecting minorities, but in actual fact, it's about changing the language to limit any possible exposure of what needs exposing. Natasha Devon, this government for a mental health size, said that she would never walk into a room in an all-girls school and say girls or ladies because it was patronising. Well, who says it was patronising? Have you asked them? Have you asked girls if they feel that way? Or have you just spoken for them and decided that's how it is? Rather than addressing children as boys or girls, she said that teachers should use gender-neutral terms such as people, students or people. Another reason not to use gender terms like girls or boys is because there may be transgender people in the room, she added. There we go, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that to make an appearance. Transgender. Well, in the end, they want no gender. Where humans, if you can call them that in that situation, will not be born, they will be grown and created synthetically in laboratories and connected to the cloud, which plays into the transhumanism agenda because transgender and neutral gender plays into the transhumanism agenda. Fundamentally, obviously, if you want a synthetic race of people, technological on one level, then you want an end to procreation. And obviously a race of people like that would not procreate. Mr. Bond said that using the term girls can evoke a sense that they have to do everything perfectly, which can create a lot of anxiety in children and teenagers. What bollocks that is. Meanwhile, the term boys carries connotations of being macho, not talking about your feelings, being told to man up. Unbelievable bollocks. However, Cheryl Giovanoni, chief executive of the Girls Day School Trust, disagreed with this advice, saying that teachers should celebrate women. She said that teachers should not attempt to wrap girls in cotton wool, adding that they will call you out if you were hiding from the fundamental problems. Again, another example of seeing the bigger story behind the news story itself. And that's why I do pay-per-view, to point out the bigger picture. So, that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.